Welcome everyone to the Nature and Nurture podcast. In today's episode, we will be talking about science and education and its relation to romantic poetry. We have three sections to share with you today, with Navin talking about natural science, Ishil giving us insight on education, and myself who will be talking about Joseph Priestley. Hope you enjoy! Navin, and welcome to the first segment of our podcast, where I'll be briefly introducing you to natural science, how poets wrote about it, and how it connects to romantic poetry. So, to start off, how was natural science used in poetry back then? So, in this era, many poets and writers strongly believed in the concept of restoring a human's relationship with the natural world. They noticed a similarity between nature and human life in the sense that they're both pure and spiritual and were later corrupted by society. So hence, they tried to visualize nature almost as a symbol of life without society. So midway through the 19th century, romantic poets started using metaphors in a new way, specifically to resist what they saw as harmful effects of science on civilization. Using natural science in their written pieces involved using organic metaphors, where they compared aspects of nature rather than more mechanical metaphors. When they wrote their pieces, they chose to view the world as if it was composed of actual living beings with sentiments rather than objects that just simply function. Pretty much, almost all the poets in this era recognized some form of natural beauty and included and really emphasized it through their writings. Not only did they feel connected to the environment around them, but they saw life reflected in it. Another common way that they used natural science was to express the concept of emotions and how a person's feelings and thoughts connect with the environment around them. Through their poems, these poets portrayed nature not only to be beautiful, but powerful, unpredictable, and possibly destructive in some ways. Some examples of the themes that they wrote about could be the beauty of green meadows, thick and green forests, rural scenes, fresh air, etc. So moving on, why was this topic so important to romantic poetry? The natural world has always been an important subject for romantic writers, and they like to celebrate it in many ways through nature's various dimensions. In many of the poems and essays written in that era, Nature plays the role similar to a living character, through which different human identities are constructed, either through the character's relationship with the natural world, or their struggle against it. They use their literature to describe the world around them, not only to help us visualize what exactly they saw, but feel and experience their feelings. Hey guys, it's Isha, and in this segment, we're going to talk about education and its importance in romantic poetry. Don't worry, don't let the word education scare you. I promise it's interesting. To begin, let's cover the basics of education. Education permits an individual to gain knowledge, skills, behavior, and ethical values and practices. In modern day society, education does not limit itself and the romantics are to thank. 
The Romantic period marks the beginning of value and intellectual gain. By accepting the characteristics of imagination, intuition, individuality, idealism, and inspiration in education. Now, you may be wondering, why a sudden change in the views of education and education itself? Well, the Romantic era was an artistic, literary, musical, and most importantly, intellectual movement. Furthermore, an industrial work shift began in the 1800s, slowly allowing women to work alongside men in factories. Needless to say, both men and females were more fruitful than children were as factory workers. Therefore, children could attend school. Pre-Romanticism, schooling was beneficial only to children of the gentry, professional, and middle class. Romantics believed females, children of color, and children of poor parents would blossom in academic achievements when they are liberated from racism, classism, and sexism. See, I told you romantics were important. They were deeply convinced a student's academic achievements were based on the opportunities they received. School taught reading, writing, simple arithmetic, and religious indoctrination, which later expanded to geography, grammar, sciences, and classics. Schools that once restricted themselves to males and the gentry were now open to poor children, funded by churches and dame schools. Well, what about the young girls, you might ask? Did their situation change? The answer to your question is yes and no. Young girls were no longer kept in households to do domestic work, but rather went to school. Exciting, right? But here's the catch. Young girls were allowed to go to school, but they were separated from their male counterparts. They were taught different curriculums. But why? We guessed it, because they were preparing the young girls to be wives. They were taught sewing, needlework, drawing, and music. Even the young female children of higher classes could not escape this curriculum. Wow, the romantics were important. Okay, but what does education have to do with romantic poetry? Why does it even matter? As children were increasingly educated, learning to read and write, romantic poetry itself flourished. Children now had the fundamental skills needed to produce poetry. During the romantic period, as more individuals were able to read, they were finally able to appreciate poetry. As women were understanding the concepts of reading and writing, they wrote poems about the limits in education towards women and why children should be educated. Now this was a big power move for females. Education influenced writers like William Blake to love to read and write, but be against the education system and feel inspired to be imaginative. William Blake, a romantic poet, describes the rules and restrictions of school in his poem, The Schoolboy. He explains how he loves to read, write, and learn, but going to school makes him feel trapped in a cage and that passion for learning goes away. William feels as if he is restricted to not be imaginative in his studies at school. Learning to read and write has allowed so many individuals to become romantic poets. 
So what was the overall impact? In my opinion, the shift in education and the views on education have given us the valuable and more important education system we receive today. Hi again guys, I'm Harman and I'll be talking about Joseph Priestley and his importance in the Romantic era of poetry. Joseph Priestley was born on March 24, 1733 in Yorkshire, England and died on February 6, 1804 in Pennsylvania, United States. He was 71 when he died and if you think about it, the life expectancy at the time was like 35, so Joseph was one healthy and lucky man. He was a renowned chemist, natural philosopher, separatist, theologian, grammarian, educator, a liberal political theorist, and the list just keeps on going. He is actually the one to discover oxygen, which I mean is impressive, I guess. On top of that, Priestley has a number of books, up to 200 books and pamphlets about chemistry and theology. How much time does this guy have? It turns out he was never fascinated by science and did not take a single course throughout his lifetime. That all changed when he met Benjamin Franklin, who came to London in 1766. So coming to the romantic aspect, Romantic poetry was about the Enlightenment ideas in the 18th century. Adding the thoughts and ideas of nature and the environment, both concepts really went hand in hand. Joseph Priestley was obviously very iconic as, as his achievements show, and he inspired an upcoming female poet named Anna Barbold, who soon became friends with Priestley. Anna Barbold's poems challenged gender stereotypes. She wrote analytically and philosophically and took on traditional masculine artistic forms and inhabited them with female experience. She was very loyal to Priestley and would often address him in her poems alongside his scientific findings. So Joseph Priestley obviously did a lot of testing and experimentation because he's a scientist, right? So he often used lab rats as his testers. One day, Anna visited his home where he, um, he had a lab set up in the basement and he was testing on mice. When Priestley finished cleaning up and went upstairs, Anna noticed a mouse in a cage sitting on his desk. Apparently, she locked eyes with the mouse and took a minute to sit down and write a poem. She titled it The Mouse's Petition in opposition to her friend Priestley's use of mice for testing. Concerns for animal rights started rising during the Enlightenment and Romantic periods, and you can actually consider this being the first um, poem about animal rights. Anna left the poem inside the cage of the mouse, and Priestley returned to it the next day. No one knows for sure whether Joseph let the mouse go free or not, but it's said in some records that he actually did. And for those of you who are thinking, well, why did he publish it and insult Priestley? While she did not ever confirm it was directed toward him, rather she denied it and defended her friend Priestley and explained that the poem was about mercy and justice rather than humanity and cruelty. I think we all need a friend like that, don't you guys think? I will now read the second and seventh stanza from the poem, but I'll put the link to the poem in the description. For here forlorn and sad I sit within the wiry grate and tremble at the approaching morn which brings impending fate. This stanza describes the mouse trembling at the thought of mourning because that is when its appointment is for testing. Anna used this first person to give more voice and power to the mouse. The well-taught philosophic mind to all compassion gives, casts around the world an equal eye, and feels for all that lives. So this stanza is written so strategically because it flatters the scientist. It makes it so the scientist feels very high of himself, and in other words, the mouse gasps the scientist's wisdom. It is a manipulative technique to show the scientist is very intelligent and that he, he should be able to tell uh, right from wrong.
Thank you for listening to the Nature and Nurture podcast. Stay tuned for our weekly episodes and share this podcast with your friends and family. Stay safe and have a great day.